So this summer, in ordinary time, we are working together with readings from the Gospel of Mark. Under this headline, you might say, the the two-word question, uh, follow me, and putting an emphasis this summer on that question mark, and taking some time, you might say, in an Ignatian sort of way to just kind of discover where we are in the various facets and elements of our lives in following Jesus. So this morning, I think the combination of that question mark and our reading, uh, the parable of the sower, I think alerts us to competing truth claims that are central, I think, to that question mark. That, that question mark that follows those words, follow me, implies at least that there are, there are claims put upon our lives constantly that work against us following Jesus. And not necessarily claims about religious doctrine, though it obviously can include that. But I'm thinking this morning more in terms of claims on our heart, claims on our imagination, claims on what's important or what seems valuable or what seems practical. So for instance, we might just think as, a, as an illustration this morning of technology. I mean, the one thing I think we would all say about technology, other than the occasional frustrations, is that it just obviously works, right? Or it wouldn't be there, right? Like, you count on pushing a button on your phone and it working. Now, occasionally it doesn't. But for the vast majority of the time, technology is sort of synonymous with it works. And it continues to work in more and more and, you know, higher and higher and increasingly different places. I, I saw an article this weekend in the New York Times The headlines which said, high-skilled, white-collar work, question mark. Machines can do that too. And the story went on to tell about how machines are now designing clothes. And they do it through this algorithm where they show the, it's, it's, it's a form of artificial intelligence where they show the machine images and the images tries to make something and the, you know, the humans say, no, that's not quite right. And they've gone through these algorithms now. Well, now in Asia, one of the fastest selling t-shirts is a t-shirt designed by a machine. So you think, you know, lots of you got up this morning with an alarm that you count on working. There's technology in all of our cars. There's automated lights at intersections. I count on my laptop working to write this sermon. I count on the soundboard up there to work to help you hear my voice. And so I just mean to say that, yeah, you know, technology occasionally can go awry, but if you just think of your heart this morning, think of the trust, the huge, deep, intuitive trust that we've come to place in technology. And in our case this morning, I think it needs to be said that religion has become the antithesis of technology. The religion is the one thing that doesn't seem true or to work at all. It seems like most seed does in fact fall on unresponsive soil. I can't prove God's existence. I saw this morning that the Philippine President Duterte, you may have seen this, big headlines in this morning's paper, I'll resign if anybody can prove to me God exists. Now, he's politically genius and knows he's saying something that's impossible. Who could prove such a thing? How do you prove a negative? How do you prove that God doesn't exist? But he knows what he's doing. He knows that that kind of works in the current zeitgeist, the current spirit of the age. And so you kind of have technology on the one hand that always seems to work, and on the other hand, God doesn't really seem to answer prayer. 
Religious institutions seem to be clearly corrupt. Bad things keep happening. And so in our imagination, it goes sort of like this. They work the bugs out of new things in cars within a model year. God apparently has had thousands of years, who knows how many millennia, and has yet to work out the bugs in humanity. And this is the kind of truth claim that I'm trying to get at, that it's, it's, I think it's mostly subconscious, but it just kind of works like, you know, we trust FedEx and UPS to get our packages where they're supposed to go. Now, again, there's occasionally a hiccup, but no one goes into a FedEx store thinking this is probably not going to get where it's going. Right? We, we walk in assuming it's going to get there, and we're shocked when it's not. And this is what I mean by the kind of truth claims that, that sit in our mind. Now, we could talk about consumerism. We could talk about human sexuality. We could talk about global politics. There's lots of other sort of imaginative meta-truth claims on our hearts and mind, but just technology this morning as an example of that. So technology gives us improved means, but to what end? Like, well, what's the purpose of technology? Well, and the answer, of course, always is to improve the human condition. And so it's just here, and it's this sort of mixed bag, but, but now what? Like, for instance, what's the creative intent and purposeful end of what a microscope or a telescope might reveal? Now, we're way too far past this to understand the deep shaking. Well, maybe today we could think of human sexuality, multiply it times 10 or 100, and we might get at the psychological disruption of telescopes undoing the story of Genesis. And it wasn't just scientific. It was that in Genesis and in the Pentateuch was our basis for moral knowledge. And so if the story of creation is wrong about what it attests for creation, well, can we trust anything that emerges out of what's supposed to be our moral history in the books of Moses? And so it's, it's great that we can see things in microscopes through telescopes. Of course, great, that's, that's fantastic. Artificial intelligence is gonna be here and it will be whatever it is, ends up being. And we just think of this in terms of progress. Well, okay, but towards what? Well, the answer usually is towards efficiency. And we tend to think maybe, or the objectivity of machines, right? But by whose or what philosophy are we meant to live within this technological age? Or are we meant to be just consumers of ever-increasing innovation? Now, again, I'm just using an illustration here of what I think are really big, really serious truth claims that work subconsciously in our hearts and minds daily. I'm honestly not bashing technology. I'm happy for it every time I get on an airplane. In fact, sometimes when I sit down on an airplane, I literally will go through in my mind with thankfulness. I'll sit there and, oh God, thank you for the design. Man, there's amazing engineers working on, I don't know, CAD machines or something that design this airplane, or I think of Roger Clark, he's not here this morning, you know? You know, our dear Roger designed the wingtips that now save airlines multiple tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in gas. That's our little Roger Clark when he worked at Boeing. And I sit there and think, man, this is amazing, and I pray for the air traffic controllers, I pray for the guys and the gals in the cockpit. I just sit there and I just rehearse how amazing air flight is. So I'm not at all down on technology. 
I just mean to say that that's an example of the kinds of things that make the soil in our heart unreceptive to the seeds that God is trying to plant. So one last thing, and we'll be done with the technology part. Some of you remember the name Neil Postman. Uh, he's dead now, but 25 years ago, wrote a book called uh, Technopoly. And Postman was a kind of a social, cultural critic. And uh, Technopoly was his way of saying 25 years ago. And of course, he could have never seen, he's dead now, but he could have never seen what the 25 years since that book has brought. But Technopoly was the idea, uh, you know what a monopoly is. Technopoly was the idea of, of technology becoming the overarching power of human life. And so there's a paragraph from his book that I think is worth reading. Postman says that via technology, uh, sources, old sources of belief came under fire. Nietzsche announced that God was dead. Darwin didn't go quite that far, but did make it clear that if we are children of God, we've certainly come through a much longer and less dignified route than we'd imagined. Marx argued that history had its own agenda and was taking us where it must, regardless of our wishes. Freud taught that we had no understanding of our deepest needs and could never trust our traditional ways of reasoning to uncover them. Einstein and his colleagues told us there were no absolute means of judging anything and that everything was relative. And amid the debris of all this, one thing stood tall, one sure thing to believe in, and that was technology. It was the underlying worldview that funded all these worldviews that I just read you. So as good as technology can be, it can't answer ultimate, transcendent, or purposeful questions. So like a calculator can calculate, you could all get out your phone right now and open your app to the calculator, and it will calculate and probably get it right 999 times out of 1,000, right? Or all, the whole time. But it can't tell you what to count. It can't tell you what matters. And it cannot tell us what our addiction to counting has done to our souls. But I can tell you what an addiction to counting has done to thousands of pastors. I can tell you how much it's destroyed their souls. An addiction to a calculator that told me how many people were coming to church and how much money was coming in, essentially. And so when Jesus comes into public saying the kinds of things that he's saying, he's rocking people's worlds. He's, you know, he's doing, you know, for them it was different. It would have been, you know, Jewish. It would have been ethnic. It would have been religious. It would have been political. It would have been different than the kinds of things that we're talking about here this morning. But in a similar way that, you know, we think, well, okay, machines work fast and they store tons of information and they automate certain forms of complexity, but they can't tell us what's real. They can't tell us what the good life is. Technology gives us no wisdom about what sort of seed that God is planting in the world. It can't. It never will. But Jesus' parables, they're meant to give us this sort of meaning in life. Now, in the main, Jesus' parables, they were meant to teach. They were meant to explain. They were meant to reveal something. And the vast majority of the time, they were meant to expose people to the kingdom of God. And, you know, parables have this sort of feel about them as stories that are meant to sneak up on people with kind of a fresh perspective and to thereby encourage self-reflection and then an appropriate response based on that self-reflection. So in this case, this morning, we might think, well, what kind of soil am I? What kind of soil is my heart and my mind? 
So we pick up, if you look at verse 3 in your passage, Mark has Jesus saying, listen, behold. And that Greek construction there is just meant to like grab somebody's attention. And we might say today something like, hey, what do you make of this? Or, you know, try this on for size, right? So you go to buy an article of clothing and you think, well, I better try this on. Why? Well, because you're trying to figure out, does this work? Will this work? You're, you're trying to make a decision. You're trying to form an opinion about this article of clothing. And so something like that is being said here. Like, hey, try this out for size. A sower went out to sow seed. Now in Luke's version of this, he tells us that the seed is the word of God. So this sower goes out to sow seed in the parable, the seed is the word of God. Now I think we want to see here two things that we have to kind of hold in tension. That the sower is the center of the action in this parable. And it's, it's meant to give us the, this sort of narrative notion, this imaginative notion that God and his kingdom is alive among us and that it's gonna produce this amazing harvest. And so there's actually an eschatological part to this parable. There's a what's the end of this story part of this parable. And I think it goes something like this. It might not look like much is happening given all the unfruitful seed, the seed that's fallen in all the different places that doesn't produce anything. It might not look like much is happening, but some of these seeds are gonna produce up to a hundredfold. And so while God is the core focus and the sort of certainty or surety of God's kingdom coming, Jesus says, but the seed matters too. And so some of this seed, some of this message about God and his kingdom falls along the path and the birds come and, and they devour it. And, and had we read the rest of the passage or had we read this parable in the other uh, synoptics, you see that Jesus kind of explains it. In this case, he says, Satan comes and takes the word away. So there's spiritual warfare involved here. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, but when the sun rose, it was scorched and it withered away. And Jesus explains that saying, that some people hear the word and at once receive it with joy, but they don't have any real root. And so then when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, well, then they quickly fall away. Other seed, Jesus says, fell among the thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it and it didn't yield any grain. And Jesus explains this as the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things that come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And here, perhaps, we're at the heart of it. So again, I chose this morning the illustration of technology. But like I said, I could have as easily chosen consumerism. I could have as easily chosen human relationships. There's any, any number of things we could have chosen that become imaginatively somewhere deep in our soul, our will, our heart, somewhere in that executive center in which we respond to God, something can happen from the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, bent out of shape desires, that's, you know, desires for other things, means sort of maladjusted desires, they choke the word. They, they choke the life of the kingdom out of us. So in some senses, you know, I could make this into evangelistic talk, <laughs> but everyone in this room's prayed the prayer. Well, I'm assuming. But formationally, in terms of our pursuit of Christ, that that gets right at the heart of it, that there are these competing claims, these 
pre-conscious, subconscious, somewhere deep within us, these, these claims that the saints have always known. And that's why they've always said things like, shh, bring yourself to stillness, solitude, silence. Why? So you can notice. You can notice the mental monkeys jumping around in our head. And the, the twisted desires, these pre-conscious, you know, before we can even think about it, we act. The, these are the, what I'm talking about as sort of truth claims this morning. They're claims to what's real. They're claims to what's important. They're, they're claims to what we should count, what we should measure. And they kind of war with the seed of God and his kingdom that, that Jesus is wanting us to see and have. But lastly, other seeds fall into good soil and they produce grain, a grain yield of 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. And this is sort of the eschatological part. This is the assurance that even though it looks like nothing's happening and that everything's going wrong and that most people are sort of misrelating to God, be sure that this is gonna be okay. And so anybody who has ears to hear, let them hear. And that's to hear both these things. It's to hear this sort of noticing of myself and what's real and to notice it in the certainty that God is doing something here, and to notice that hard or shallow or preoccupied or overcrowded hearts, the, the kind of hearts that aren't producing the hoped-for outcome that God has, that this helps us get, as I said, to do these desires, to default positions, to the deep commitments of our soul. And so, as I said, this parable runs along two lines. One, you can count on the fact that when it's all said and done, a hundredfold yield is coming. And that the kingdom of God, though it's like this little mustard seed, to quote one of other Jesus's other parables, will one day flower into this huge tree that produces and can hold life. But then it also invites us to look at the soil of our own soul. I don't remember which book it was, but in one of John Ortberg's books, he writes that it's helpful to note both the variables and the constant in this parable, or the constants. And so if you look at your passage and think about it, the seed is a constant, right? The, the seed of the kingdom of God being sown, that's a constant. The sower is a constant. And there's a generous generosity with the seed that this sower, what marks him is generosity, and a willingness to scatter to the seed. But it's the soil, the bent of the soul, that's the variable. And it is this to which we are invited to attend. It's that which makes the question mark, the end of follow me. Now, our ordinary time goal, you might say, in these weeks that we'll spend together in this summer is something like this. We're coming best we can to a single-minded and joyous devotion to God and to what God wants for us and to service to him and to others through him and because of him. And we seek this formation in Christ through the process of a constant immersing ourselves, whatever it would take in your spiritual practices to immerse yourself in the will and the power and the presence of God moving ourselves and being moved by him from self-worship 
to Christ-centered self-denial as this slowly, through the grace and power of God, becomes our general character. That's what we're shooting for. Follow me is deeply personal. And it means fundamentally taking on someone else's character. And that's what we're shooting for, is we just gently pay attention to where we are with reference to that. And pray together this ordinary time prayer. So if you'll stand with me up on our screen is our ordinary time response. As you know, we mostly respond to messages around here in silence. In this ordinary time, we're responding together in prayer. We say together, Lord Jesus, help me to know you, to love you, to follow you. Help alleviate my fears and fan the embers of trust within me. Give me the strength to say yes to your invitations, the courage to continue my journey with you. Remind me that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And apart from you, there is no life. But with you and you alone is fullness of life, life everlasting. Amen.